14% of Americans have difficulty walking on stairs. 11% have serious difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions. 7% face challenges living independently. 6% deal with deafness or difficulty hearing. But in the Bible, Jesus almost appears drawn to those with disabilities. Why is that? Just ahead, a stimulating conversation on this topic. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host, an Old Testament scholar, Israel authority, and all-around good guy. I'm John Geiger asking, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and, and what does it mean for you? Well, John, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving a free ebook is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Hey, Charlie, remember last week we had that big book blast giveaway? Six books we said we were going to give away. We've got a winner. It's Gary Knox from Hillboro, Tennessee. Listen to what he wrote. Most of us, he says, will never get to the land of Israel physically, but we can get there in our minds every week listening to the land and the book. Charlie Dyer and John Geiger, plus their interesting and fascinating guests, describe Israel and events there with detail and clarity that make you feel like you're there. That's a great news. In fact, he went on to say, after listening to the land and the book for several years, I had a real desire to see for myself the things that have been described on the program. Now, after having been to Israel, I get even more out of the program because I can remember places and situations that are being described. He's even written in with some questions that you've answered, Charlie, and says, one of the best parts of the program is the devotional. Each week by Charlie Dyer, I often share his insights with family members, my Sunday school class, and others. And in fact, he ended by answering the question you asked him to answer. He says, so why listen to the land in the book? As outlined above, these programs will help you grow in your Christian walk and also help you appreciate the nation of Israel, past, present, and future. Remember, as Christians, we will be going there in the future, so why not start preparing now? Well, Gary, thank you for those very kind words. We look forward to sending you not one or two or three or four or five, but six books <laughs> to say thank you for your email. Charlie, let's look at current events for the week from the Middle East. Now that President Biden's trip to the Middle East is in the rearview mirror, what impact did his time there have on the region? Was he able to successfully accomplish what he initially set out to do? Well, you know, I think it's fair to say the trip wasn't a failure. It did accomplish several of the goals set out by the president. Uh, he sought to encourage and assure Israel of U.S. support in keeping Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. And the president and Israeli Prime Minister Lapid signed a joint strategic declaration to that end. Uh, he also sought to assure the Palestinians of his support for a two-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he made a public declaration of that support. Plus, he provided additional U.S. funds to help the Palestinians. And he wanted to have Israel and Saudi Arabia take steps that could eventually lead to peace between the countries. He got Israel to allow Egypt to transfer two islands in the Red Sea to Saudi control. And he got the Saudis to permit Israeli airplanes to fly over Saudi airspace. Now, unfortunately, at the end of the day, each of these accomplishments fell short of what had been intended. Biden said the U.S. won't wait forever for an Iran deal. 
but he wasn't willing to set deadlines to reach an agreement or to specify what he was willing to do if an agreement isn't reached. In fact, Prime Minister Lapid replied by saying diplomacy won't stop Iran from going nuclear, and the only way to get them to stop is to include a credible military threat. The Palestinians were also disappointed when, after affirming his support for a two-state solution, President Biden then said the time wasn't yet right to move forward. And in Saudi Arabia, he'd hoped the Saudis would agree to pump more oil to help ease gas prices, but they were unwilling to boost production beyond quotas set by OPEC. The Saudis also publicly denied that opening their airspace was a step toward peace with Israel. And finally, the hope of building an alliance between the Gulf states and Israel against Iran was dealt a setback when the United Arab Emirates opted out of the air defense pact. So Mm. in spite of all the glitz and glitter, you know, little was actually accomplished, at least publicly. But we do need to remember, not everything that happens was necessarily reported publicly. Mm. Uh, Understandings could have been reached on a number of other areas uh, that they simply don't want to make public. But what was reported seems to have fallen short of what expectations were at the beginning. Well, Israel's next election is still more than three months away, but the different parties are already actively looking for ways to gain an advantage at the polls. What's the latest on the different maneuvers taking place, Charlie? Well, one of the biggest moves is the decision by Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party and Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party to run as a joint slate. Now, the parties don't actually merge, but they join together in a way that they hope will give them greater representation in the Knesset. Uh, They hope to capture what some in Israel are calling the soft right, uh, that is, voters who are somewhat more traditional and who are concerned with overall security and peace. Uh, They're similar in that regard to the Likud party, but they're not as comfortable with Likud's dependence on the ultra-Orthodox or the control the ultra-Orthodox have over key parts of Israel's society. Uh, This new alliance won't end up with more seats in the Knesset than Likud, but they hope they'll be more appealing to other parties when it comes time to form a coalition. Meanwhile, the Yamina party, which was Naftali Bennett's party, the former prime minister's, in a fight for its political life. Recent polls suggest they won't even secure enough votes to gain any seats in the Knesset. Now, it's unclear if they'll try to form a joint list with another party or if other parties might simply try to pull away their remaining voters by telling them to not throw away their votes on a party that won't make it into the Knesset. A new poll shows no blocks of parties, at least right now, are able to form a majority government. Uh, sadly, Likud, Yeshatid, and the Blue and White New Hope Party's joint list will likely end up with more than 70 seats between them, and all three hold broadly similar views, but each is led by a leader who wants to be prime minister, and it seems extremely unlikely all three could ever join together. If you've just joined us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East authority, and I'm John Geiger as we work our way through a list of stories that are unfolding in the Middle East, headlines from the past week. Minutes after President Biden left Israel, you can't miss the timing, Hamas or one of the other groups in Gaza fired rockets into the country. What message were they trying to send and were they successful? Well, they were trying to send a message to Israel and the U.S. that they will not be pushed quietly toward the exit in any future deal. However, Hamas apparently miscalculated. Uh, Two salvos of rockets were fired into Israel. Most landed harmlessly in open areas. And the one remaining missile was destroyed by the Iron Dome system. Hamas likely expected Israel to respond as they have in the past by attacking one of the observation towers along the border. But instead, Israel bombed an underground weapons production factory. The bomb destroyed tons of explosives, significantly setting back Hamas's production capabilities. 
The attack highlighted the effectiveness of Israel's security operations. They knew exactly where this supposedly secret underground facility was located. Now, it's not yet clear if Hamas will respond to that attack. However, the fact that Israel chose to hit a site Hamas thought was well hidden and protected does create uncertainty on their part. If Israel knew about that site, what other strategic sites might they strike next? Right. Well, hopefully that uncertainty will cause Hamas to pause and think before attacking again. Well, Israel is undertaking a massive project to rehabilitate the Kidron Valley. What makes this project so significant and what impact could it have on the country in years to come? Well, you know, those who've been to Israel know the Kidron Valley is that small valley between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. But what most don't know is the valley continues to the southeast and extends all the way to the Dead Sea. Uh, Below Jerusalem, in the Judean wilderness, it actually becomes one of the largest and most impressive of the streams that breaks out and flows through the wilderness. The problem historically is that as Jerusalem and all the surrounding villages grew, the valley and stream became little more than an open sewer with 50,000 cubic meters of raw sewage flowing into the valley every day. Over the years, the valley also became clogged with other debris and garbage. Well, now, after three years of planning and two and a half years of infrastructure work and about $350 million in public funding, one of the most challenging and complex engineering and environmental projects in Israel is starting to pay dividends. Ten of a planned 23 miles of sewage pipe have been laid so far, and a treatment facility has been built in the Judean wilderness to absorb that sewage that was flowing into the region. Workers have sifted through more than 150,000 cubic meters of dirt and waste and removed more than 20,000 tons of garbage to landfills. Now, more work still needs to be done, but the goal of the project is to restore the Kidron Valley to the majesty and splendor it once had in the past. And John, for that, we can all be thankful. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Our website is full of great resources for you. You'll find us at The Land and the Book. .org, thelandandthebook.org. Guest information, past and future programs, audio you can listen to from previous programs, as well as some links to books that Charlie and I have written, all there at thelandandthebook.org. Have you emailed us lately? We love hearing your thoughts, your reactions. You can connect with us anytime, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Coming up, Jesus and Disability. A fascinating conversation you don't want to miss on The Land and the Book. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 61 million, that's 26% of adults in the United States, live with a disability of some kind. For example, 4% have trouble dressing or bathing. Nearly 5% cope with blindness or serious difficulty seeing. 11% have serious difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions. 14% of American adults have difficulty walking or going upstairs. The thing is, disabilities have been around as long as humanity. Question then, how did Jesus think about disability? How did he minister to the disabled? And what can we learn from his example? Well, we'll talk about it coming up here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you back to segment two of the broadcast. First, here's a a brief idea for sharing Christ with a Jewish friend. I happen to live in the state of Illinois. They claim there are two seasons in Illinois and only two seasons, winter and construction season. (laughs) 
which means roadblocks. They're everywhere. Hey, is there such a thing as a conversational roadblock when you're reaching out to a Jewish friend? Let's ask Cynthia Stroll, who serves alongside her husband at Olive Tree Congregation in the Chicago suburbs. What do you think? Are there other roadblocks maybe we should be aware of, Cynthia? I think uh, one of the biggest roadblocks is the one that we bring to a conversation. We're terrified. We don't want to offend. We don't want to alienate. We don't want to cause a separation in a relationship. And so our own fear and unbelief is one of the biggest roadblocks. But thankfully, that's something that the Lord can deal with when we bring it to him in prayer and ask him to change us. Yeah, so uh, these roadblocks pop up. It could be that we're simply unaware that they are there. Maybe the first step is to saying, Maybe there are some roadblocks I've never even thought were even there. That's right. And again, that's it all comes down to our relationship with him and caring about what he cares about. And he cares about his people. He's at work in this world today. He works. He's always worked with a remnant, and he is redeeming a remnant of his people. And how exciting that he might use just an average person like me or you mm. to reach out to one of these people. Yeah, and maybe the next step really is to say, God, what are the roadblocks that I have allowed or created? Right. And to give it up and to say... I'm willing to look foolish. I'm willing to look silly to reach out and share my heart and his love for them. Insights there from Cynthia Stroll, who serves alongside her husband at Olive Tree Congregation in the suburbs of Chicago. Appreciate your insights. Thanks, John. Dr. Chris Holshoff is an associate professor and department chair for Liberty University's School of Divinity. His teaching responsibilities include courses in Old Testament survey, inductive Bible study, as well as a theology of suffering and disability. Dr. Hulshoff earned his degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's done a lot of research on disabilities, and he's written the timely book, Jesus and Disabilities, our focus right now on the land and the book. This is an important topic, Chris, so thanks for giving us not just the book, but your time today. Well, thank you for having me. You know, it seems like Jesus almost appears drawn to those with disabilities. You agree? And if so, why would that be? Uh, yeah, I think you see that uh, throughout the Scripture. You see his interaction with people that we would identify as being disabled. And you see that in his healing miracles. You see, and I think part of the reason is, as he knows what creation was supposed to be, and he knows uh, how sin has impacted that. And so I think you see uh, the response of Jesus as he as he has compassion and care and concern for those who are disabled, recognizing that in the original design of the world, this is not how it was supposed to be. Uh, but because of sin, death, disease, disability, things like that are a reality in our world. Take us to a, a poster child moment in the Gospels where Jesus engages someone with a disability in a way that is instructive for us in the 21st century. I think probably the biggest one, and it's probably my favorite of the gospel stories that deal with uh, Jesus and disability, uh, it's John 9 and John 10. It's actually the way Jesus responds to his disciples. His disciples see a man who's born blind, and their thought is, this is the perfect opportunity for us to get a theological question in with Jesus. And so they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They don't see a human being worth helping. What they see is a theological question worth yeah. asking. And so they want Jesus to give an answer, and Jesus says basically to them, you're asking the wrong question. That's not even the question. The religious leaders have thrown him out of the temple and said, look, 
look, no, you're on team Jesus. And so rather than caring for and looking after and being excited about this healing miracle, they in turn have turned it into a way to get rid of somebody. And Mm -hmm. Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to care for this gentleman. And so you see there's really sort of a whole bunch of sets of interactions there, not only between the disciples and this man who was born blind, Jesus and the man who was born blind, the religious Mm -hmm. leaders and the man who was born blind. And I think when you unpack each one of those, uh, you can see different ways in which our culture still reflects those ideas that are present there and then how Jesus responds and interacts there. We're talking with Chris Hulshoff today on The Land and the Book. Our focus, Jesus and disability. What do we misunderstand, Chris, about the way Jesus related to people with disabilities? I think one of the things we miss is uh, just the the compassion and the human element. Um, I go to John 5, another one of these good Jesus and disability stories. This is the the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Um, And Jesus catches up with the man at the pool, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. And rather than giving any reason for why he can be healed, all the man can do is give him excuses. As a matter of fact, every time this guy speaks in John 5, it's an excuse. And he, he always has an excuse for why he can't be healed or why he's picking up his mat or why he's carrying his mat. And then at the end of it, he doesn't even make a profession of faith in Jesus. Jesus catches up with him again and gives him an opportunity to make a profession of faith in who he is as the Messiah. And this man, instead of making this profession of faith, essentially turns on Jesus and reports him to the religious leaders and says, this is the guy uh, who healed me. He will never make this profession of faith in him as far as we can tell from Scripture. Yet Jesus' compassion and concern was such that what Jesus is just demonstrating was what care and compassion for the disabled look like in helping them with their need in that moment. Hey, what kind of a report card, Chris, would you give to the evangelical church today with regard to engaging people with disabilities? Where are we strong and where do we need to improve? If you go into the 60s and the 70s, you'll find a lot of actual content written about disabilities. Now, it's all using language that we don't use anymore, but it's all there. And then sometime in the early 80s, all of a sudden it just drops off and there's not a lot written. And so where I think we're making ground is in the fact that uh, there's more and more literature coming out as it relates to disabilities and disability ministries. What does it look like to minister to those who are disabled? Um, Where I think the church can make an improvement or where the improvement can be made, really, I think, is um, what does this look like theologically? Uh, And here's what I mean by that. I think a lot of times when you look at literature today, it's very programmatic. Here's here's this program, or here's the way to do this, or here's the way to... There's not much in there content-wise theologically. And so I I always remind my students, you've got to understand the gospel in a way that you can communicate it to a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old year old or a six-year-old, or you've got to be able to present the gospel in a way that whatever the age group you're working with can understand it. Jesus and disability. That's our conversation today with Chris Hulshoff. I'm John Geiger, and you're listening to The Land and the Book. You know, people are increasingly sensitive about the name you give their disability, to the point where it sometimes feels like if we're going to try and minister to the disabled, we're walking across a minefield, and that scares some of us away. Speak to this tension. 
I think that's true. I think a lot of times the one reason why uh, a lot of people don't get involved in disability ministry is simply because I'm afraid. Uh, they would give a whole bunch of other excuses, a whole bunch of other sort of myths, but the one underlying factor that kind of covers it all is I'm afraid. And I think that speaks to probably a theological issue within the church having to do with the image of God. In other words, we have forgotten that people, all human beings, are made in the image of God. And as an imager of God, that means that they're just like us. And so rather than sort of setting up a, well, when you've done it under the least of these sort of paradigm, when you see every human being as made in the image of God, then the response is you're more apt to interact with uh, and encounter and discuss and be involved with others because you see them first and foremost as image bearers. Hmm. Let's speak directly to those listening right now who live with disabilities. It's tempting to say, you know, well, Jesus healed so many of those people with their disabilities. Me, I have to live with mine. So what's the point here? from a church perspective, the way in which we uh, all are a part of a body of Christ, and that there's no... that, it, that we all have a part to play. And so it's very easy for those uh, who are disabled to think, well, I show up on a Sunday, I come, I sit, I listen, I learn, and then I leave, rather than seeing themselves as being important within the body of Christ. And so one of the things a church can do in that situation is involve those with disability within the church. What does it look like for someone uh, who has a disability, maybe to be the greeter uh, or one of the greeting team, when they walk in, what does it look like to have uh, somebody who has a disability involved in the day-to-day ministry of a church? And I think when that's the reality of what ministry looks like, I think that answers that question of, so, you know, what's the point here? I feel excluded. Today on The Land and the Book, we're honored to have with us Chris Hulshoff. Our conversation is a timely one, Jesus and disability. How do you think our witness for Christ and our reputation as Christians would change if we treated disabled people with the same heart that Jesus showed? I think what we would see is that uh, we'd have a more effective witness to the community. I think one of the things that happens is that it's very easy for us to uh, look at it and go, well, I don't have the resources, or we don't have the people, or we don't have the the space, or we don't have, you know, this to, we don't have what we need to properly minister to those who are disabled. How would it be if someone new to your community, your next door neighbor, said to you, hey, so I, I know that you see, you know, we're a new family here, and I know you've noticed that we have a, a daughter who's disabled, or we have a son who's disabled. Do you know, uh, where's the best place to get plugged in? And I said, wouldn't it be neat if your response was, well, you know, there's this church over on 8th and Main, and man, everybody I know who is either disabled or has a child who is disabled, or uh, they all seem to go there. Wouldn't it be neat if the church was this beacon of hope within each community for those who are disabled, rather than, well, there's this organization or there's this 501c3 or, you know, <laughs> instead, it's the church that is the, this beacon of hope within the community. Hey, what grace do you think disabled people need to extend to the church to make them feel more relaxed about reaching out? 
I think some of it is the reality that we're learning. Yes. Yes, the church is playing catch up here. We don't have it figured out. We're learning. We're we're trying to get better. We're trying to improve. And so it's one of the things I love about the fact that in, in my theology of suffering and disability class, I have a lot of pastoral majors who are in this class. Why? Because they've said to me, I know that this is important for my ministry, and I want to make sure I get it right. I want to make sure I do it right. I want to make sure I, I that my church is the kind of place where those who are disabled feel like they're welcome and they want to be a part of that community. So what I would say is, look, we're learning and we're trying. Help us be better. Uh, help us when we miss something or help us when, mm. hey, this didn't work or help us understand where we can improve. Yeah. Well, disabilities come in all different shapes and sizes, so there's no one-size-fits-all answer. But what are two or three relatively easy changes you think that most churches could make that would create more of a welcoming atmosphere for disabled people? One of the things that is most helpful or would be most helpful for church leaders is pull into the parking lot one day and go, okay, I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, What does this look like? Maybe if you even have one, put yourself in one and then go, okay, now I'm coming into my church and I have a wheelchair. What does this look like? Where's the ramp to get in to the building? Okay. Is that anywhere near the parking place? Is there enough handicapped parking places? And I think that would go a long way to having a building uh, that's prepared. Now, the other thing I would suggest is this. Uh, you can have an, an accessible building, but not have acceptable people. In other words, you've made this building and this plan so that it's easy for someone who has a disability to get in the church and be a part of the church, but the people may not be acceptable. There's, those are two elements uh, that would go a long way in helping prepare a church in a welcoming manner for those who are disabled, especially if you're thinking in terms of just a general disability perspective. Chris, you've written the book, Jesus and Disability. Our time is all but gone, but in a very brief moment, what do you think Jesus would say to us about handling disability? What would his words be to us as we close? I think his words to us would be uh, to model and do as he did, to show compassion, uh, to befriend, to come alongside and care for those who are disabled, uh, just as, as he did. Chris Halshoff has written Jesus and Disability, a link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate your insights, Chris. A very important subject. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, coming up on The Land of the Book, a favorite segment of many, Charlie's answers to your questions. It's all coming up next on The Land and the Book. Maybe this is your very first time listening to The Land and the Book. You say, what's this next segment all about? Charlie, what's this next segment all about? Well, John, it's one of my favorite parts. It's where people can ask their questions. They can write in with any questions they have, and uh, we'll try and find an answer for them from the Bible. Uh, the teacher in me loves it. When when a student asks a question, as I, I've said in the past, it's like saying, sick them to a dog for a teacher. Uh, it gives us motivation to dig in ourselves and find a good answer. Hey, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? And why is it important? And what does it mean for you and for me? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that issue. It's called The Rapture. 
Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explains 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, let's dig into our questions for the day, starting with Ruth. She says, For years I have heard that leaven is a symbol of sin, and I believe I've heard that it always represents sin. In reading Luke 13, 20, where Jesus speaks, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took. I think I must be missing something here. But what? Leaven here doesn't sound akin to sin. Please educate me. Well, Ruth, I'd say that in most occurrences in the Bible, leaven was indeed used as a symbol for sin. But I don't believe that's true in all cases. As you've discovered, Luke 13, 20 seems to be one clear example where it refers to the kingdom's ability to thoroughly permeate the world. Uh, Leviticus 7.13 is another example. There, God commanded the peace offering to be offered with leavened bread, and I don't think God would command sin to be part of his offering. Now, those two passages are good reminders that a symbol can at times have more than one meaning, and we need to look carefully at the context to determine how God intended that symbol to be used. All right, question here from Carol. During a message, I heard a speaker say that swaddling clothes, like those used when Jesus was born, might have been funeral garments. Your thoughts here? Well, I've heard individuals do that as well. They connect the swaddling clothes, like in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, with the linen cloth Jesus was wrapped in after being taken from the cross in Luke 23. And some have said the practice uh, relates to the fact that individuals carried a funeral cloth with them when they traveled, so they'd have something in which to be buried when they died if they were away from home. Now, that makes a great story but I've never found any historical evidence to support that connection. And what I have discovered, though, is that the word Luke uses in chapter 2, verse 7, comes from the word for swaddling clothes or swaddling band. But in contrast, he uses a different Greek word for the linen cloth in chapter 23. And if I add to it, John chapter 11, when Jesus called Lazarus to come out of the tomb, Lazarus was bound hand and foot with wrappings, and it's still a third Greek word. Now, what that tells me is I can find no instances where the word that's used for swaddling clothes is ever used to describe the wrappings that were placed on a dead body. If you've got a question about the Bible, prophecy, or the Middle East, it's always welcome here at the land and the book at moody.edu. Marvin's got an interesting question here. He takes us first to Matthew 10, 14, where it says, if they don't respond to God's words, Shake the dust off your feet and go. Jeremiah 7:16 says, Do not pray for the people, God will not listen. The people had so turned from God. And in Amos 5, verse 13, the prudent man keeps quiet in such time. He knows he can't change things and waits for God's judgment. Here's the question: At what point do we give up on people and cities and get out? I know many people who are leaving places like where I live and moving not to a perfect place, but to a better place. Are they wrong for going, or are we wrong for staying? Well, I've got to start by looking at each of those passages you mentioned, and I think in each one, God gives a direct command. You know, in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus gave specific commands to his disciples when he sent them on a very special assignment just to the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 7, 16, which, by the way, is also repeated again in chapter 11, 
God commanded Jeremiah not to pray because he said a time of final judgment for the nation had arrived. The Babylonians were coming. Amos 5 is slightly different. It's not a command as such not to pray, but a description of what someone who's prudent or wise does when the time of judgment does arrive. But it follows a message where God had announced to Israel he was coming to judge them. Now, our problem today is that God has not given us a direct command announcing imminent judgment or calling on us not to pray for our city or our nation. So real question then is, should one leave or go? I think that's a personal decision that needs to be made between an individual and the Lord. Paul had to leave some cities because of persecution. In Matthew 24, verses 15 to 18, Jesus described a time when the people of Judah would need to flee because of persecution. So there are times when personal safety is a good reason for leaving. I know people who've left an area because of job opportunities or family safety or even the deteriorating quality of schools. I think such decisions need to be made after much prayer and seeking the mind of God. And frankly, I think that's the best advice I can give. Stefan says, you frequently refer to the Palestinians on your show. However, there are so many different definitions of what a Palestinian really is. I would like to know what a Palestinian is by your definition. Yeah, it's a simple question. I I wish I had a simple answer, but it's rather complex. Now, from the time of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, that's about a century after Jesus, up until 1948, the terms Palestine and Palestinian were geographical terms. A Palestine, which, by the way, is the name of the Philistines, Israel's historic enemy, Palestina was the Roman name, uh, that was given by Hadrian to the region because he wanted to erase all Jewish connections to the land. So as a result, the people who lived there from his day till 1948, whether they were Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, were collectively called Palestinians. In fact, the Jerusalem Post, one of Israel's premier Jewish newspapers, uh, back before 1948, it was called the Palestine Post. But that's because the term was a geographical term. Now, since 1948, especially since 1967, uh, the term Palestine, Palestinian has become a political term. Now, in that sense, it refers to those Arabs who live in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, but who are not citizens of the state of Israel. And finally, and you have to listen carefully to this, there's never been an actual ethnic group of people known as the Palestinians. Those who call themselves that today are related ethnically through their DNA to the many powers who've swept through the land over the centuries, from the Arabs who swept in from the Arabian Peninsula to the Egyptians, Syrians, Turks, and other ethnic groups who came through the land. Now, when we refer to the Palestinians on the program, we normally are using the term in the modern political sense to refer to those Arabs who live in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Now, that's a rather simplistic overview, but I hope it's helpful. Your question about the Bible prophecy in the Middle East is always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. You know, as you listen to these questions that we're sharing today, I bet one comes to mind for you. Well, why not jot it down? in your email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. From Peggy comes this question. In Acts 7, verse 20, the Scripture teaches that Moses was in his father and mother's care for three months. An infant has to be nourished many months by his mother. And how could Moses have known about his people, the Hebrew slaves, that they were his natural people if he had only been in his parents' home for three months? I appreciate any light you might be able to shed on this question. Yeah, I think the best way to understand this is to see uh, Stephen referring to the three months that Moses was hidden by his family right after birth. When they could no longer hide him, that's when his mother placed him in a basket in the Nile and had Moses' sister Miriam watch over him. 
Uh, When Stephen talked about Moses being placed outside in verse 21, uh, he's referring to that incident. Uh, The actual events recorded in Exodus chapter 2 in verses 1 to 4, but then in verse 5 and and on, we're told Moses' own mother was then allowed to nurse him until he grew older, is the word that's used in verse 10. Uh, This likely took several years, and I think that's when Moses was taught about his family and his people. From Stephen, this question, the book of Obadiah is a prophecy against the Edomites. If it involved the invasion by the Philistines, Obadiah was written around 840 B.C., If it was at the time of the Babylonian exile, Obadiah was written around 586 B.C. Which date do you believe is accurate? Yeah, it's quite a bit of difference, isn't it? I hold to an early date of about 845 B.C. for the book of Obadiah, though there are arguments for and against both of those two major dates. Now, in my opinion, the two strongest arguments for the early date are the fact that the enemies that are listed by Obadiah are the Edomites and the Philistines rather than the Babylonians. And I think the uh, second argument is the fact that Obadiah is quoted in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Now, if Joel was written early, and I think it was, then Obadiah had to be written even earlier. Now, of course, that depends on how you date the book of Joel, but I date that around 835 to 830 BC. So a date around 845 BC for Obadiah, I think fits very nicely, which makes it the first written prophet. A whirlwind trip through today's list of questions. And again, you can send yours to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. The truest ruler of the human heart is measured in thankfulness. And yet thankfulness eludes an awful lot of Christ followers. It's, it's easy to be a follower, but not a thankful follower. Well, Charlie Dyer, I understand your devotional, offers some insights into this issue of thankfulness. You know, it does, John, and it's going to take us into the Jezreel Valley and an encounter with Jesus and the Samaritans. And we'll head to that very interesting location and Charlie's devotional. But first, I wanted you to hear this Holy Land experience. One person's account of what it's like to travel to the Holy Land and then come home afterward different. This is Grady Hauser. I think uh, when we got back from Israel, we've often said, I've studied the Bible and the scriptures for 50 years. And yet, after coming back from Israel, we have, we've often said that it was like reading in black and white before, and now you're reading in color. I'm sure that's not original with us, but it was certainly true for us. Our experience, I would think of a couple of things very briefly. To go to the Sea of Galilee and to be on the northwest shore and to realize that possibly within a a few hundred yards, give or take, up and down that shore, you're looking at the very spot where Jesus would have talked to Peter and John and to call them from their fishing to follow him. Or perhaps also I would think of uh, how meaningful it was to go to Caesarea Philippi and to realize why it was that Jesus walked all that way up there with his disciples to tell them that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what that would have meant for them sitting there at Caesarea Philippi at that pagan shrine. Never get tired of those stories, do we? Well, you think about the ministry of Jesus and the way he had time for everybody. Time for even those who were culturally on the wrong side of the tracks, like the Samaritans, 
Charlie, what about the thankful Samaritan in Luke 17? Yeah, that's where we're heading, John. And to get there, we have to go to the Jezreel Valley. Next to Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, it's hard to imagine another place in the Holy Land with so much history packed into such a relatively small area. Our journey today takes us to the site of the ancient city of Jezreel, the city of Ahab and Jezebel. But we're not here to talk about them. Rather, we're here to take in the view and talk about Jesus. Off to our left, we can see Mount Carmel rising up in the distance, and we think immediately of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The city of Megiddo stands guard over a key pass through Mount Carmel. And though the city's mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament, we know it best from the one time it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, where Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, is translated as Armageddon. Across the valley stands the Nazareth Ridge, where Jesus grew up. But partially blocking our view of that ridge is the hill of Moray. Both Elisha and Jesus raised a boy from death to life in villages on its slopes. And behind us is Mount Gilboa, the place where Gideon chose his 300 warriors and where Saul died fighting the Philistines. In fact, Mount Gilboa and Mount Carmel stretch across the entire southern edge of the Jezreel Valley. This valley was the border between Galilee and Samaria at the time of Jesus. The most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem went straight south through Samaria. But the Samaritans and the Jews in Jesus' day struggled as much as the Palestinians and the Jews do today. And as a result, many Jews in Jesus' day took a detour around Samaria that brought them down to the Jezreel Valley and then east to the Jordan River. They would then cross the Jordan, travel down the eastern side of the Jordan Valley, and cross back over the Jordan near Jericho. The detour added an extra day to the journey but it also avoided an unpleasant confrontation with the Samaritans. Jesus actually used both roadways to Jerusalem. There were times when he went directly through Samaria, like the time he met the woman at the well. But other times he did cross the Jordan, and on those occasions he would come up to Jerusalem through Jericho and then stay at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. On his final journey to Jerusalem, Jesus chose this more indirect pathway. Now, we know this because the Gospels record events that happened in Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. But we also know it because of a geographical detail included by Dr. Luke in his Gospel account. In Luke 17, he wrote, And it came about, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. The words used by Luke let us know that Jesus didn't travel through Samaria, but along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now, take a look at the valley in front of you. You're looking at the border. When Luke said Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee, he's letting us know Jesus was walking down this valley. Galilee was just to his north and Samaria to his south, and he was heading toward the Jordan River. Somewhere along this route, perhaps very near where we are standing, Jesus passed through one of the many towns that dotted the landscape. And that's where he saw a heart-wrenching sight. Ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Leprosy, today called Hansen's disease, was an incurable, disfiguring disease causing permanent damage to the face, hands, feet, and eyes. These men were condemned to a life of rejection and isolation. When they saw Jesus passing by, they cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus responded by telling them to go and show themselves to the priests. 
That might seem like a strange response, but it's really not, as the book of Leviticus makes quite clear. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. Though not yet cleansed, Jesus sends them to the one group in all Israel who will be able to pronounce them healed once it happens. All ten started the journey to Jerusalem, showing their willingness to obey Jesus' command. This suggests they knew and accepted his reputation as a healer. It also suggests they chose a different route than the one being taken by Jesus. Likely, they took the road heading directly south to Jerusalem. If there was any advantage to having leprosy, it was that everyone, including thieves and robbers, would keep their distance. All ten began the journey to Jerusalem, but they didn't get far. Luke says they were healed as they were going. We assume that means as they were going to Jerusalem. But the word used by Luke is more properly translated when they were going away. The miracle happened not as they were heading toward Jerusalem, but as they were leaving Jesus. All ten were healed before they could even make it very far away. But after being healed, only one turned back, glorifying God as he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus. And Luke takes care to note that the one who returned was a Samaritan, possibly to suggest that the other nine were not. All had been healed shortly after leaving Jesus, but the one who responded with a heart of faith and gratitude was the one who was likely despised the most. He was a leper and he was a Samaritan. And he was the only one who returned to praise God and to demonstrate his gratitude to Jesus. And Jesus rewarded his faith by announcing his spiritual cleansing in addition to his physical healing. As we watch that man now turn and depart one final time to obey Jesus' command to show himself to the priests, what lesson can we learn from this dramatic encounter right here in the Jezreel Valley? I'd like to suggest two. First, our spiritual health is far more important than our physical health. All ten lepers received physical healing from Jesus, but all eventually died of something else. Yet we know we'll see at least one of the ten in heaven because he returned to Jesus and received spiritual healing because of his faith. Second, I believe this encounter reminds us of the importance of a thankful heart. We live in a day of a selfish, self-centered, demanding society. I want it. I want it now. I want it all. And I want it my way. And yet the more we have, the more unhappy we seem to be. Maybe it's time to stop and remember to give thanks to God for his blessings. Just like the leper from Samaria, we need to stop, turn back toward Jesus, and thank God for all he's done for us. Wow, what a great lesson there from this one thankful Samaritan leper. Powerful insight there from Luke 17. Thanks, Charlie. We want to say thanks as well to the management at this station for carrying the land and the book. You know, there are so many options for stations these days, and we count it a privilege to be heard on this station. And so we say thanks to you. And hey, if you appreciate the land and the book, why not let the management at this station know? A call, an email, a text would be really helpful. 
Want to say thanks as well to the team that brings you The Land of the Book, our co-producer, Dan Anderson, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, I'm John Geiger. Be sure to check out the website, thelandandthebook.org. You'll find information about today's guest and every guest, past programs, upcoming programs, information about Charlie's books, and there's a link there to our Facebook page, updated regularly with photos from Israel, and lots of great thoughts, including your own questions. Well, that'll do it for today's broadcast. Thanks so much for carving out time to be with us right here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.